Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine, and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Good evening, everybody, and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport. It is the 1st of December. It is just after 8 o'clock, and we are on Series 16. This is episode 47. At Spectatainment, if you'd like to get in touch with us uh, tonight, hello to everyone who's already tweeted in Sarah Rigby, hoping to be back in time for this. EFA is for Matt Ending, who's relocating his spare engines, plural, to their new home. And they're making plans for Extreme E tonight. Okay. You don't need engines for that, though, do you? You need batteries. Uh, Stephen Lloyd, have a race tonight on ACC. We'll be catching the podcast for the journey to Derby tomorrow. Uh, Hello to Jet, who's on Netball Taxi Duties tonight. Taxi Dad. So he'll be tuning in on Thursday. EFA's for the Colonel tonight, TM. Uh, early shift tomorrow. Sad news about Sir Frank Williams. Such an innovator. Will be missed by the midway, by the motorsport community as a whole. We'll be uh, talking to a couple of our team members about Sir Frank in the early part of tonight's show. Hello to Dave Olcott. Looking forward to Laura Wontrup Clouser joining us. She will be doing that after 9 o'clock tonight. The head of Chevrolet Racing. I said uh, she had some very com- interesting comments on Cadillac and Corvette uh, last time. Looking forward to that, says Dave. RTL, right town lover, and a move that will put nobody's international surprise face, or indeed national, regional, or local surprise face on his airface tonight. Uh, thanks for tuning on to the, uh, onto the archive, RTL. Uh, getting on for 6 million downloads of Midweek Motorsport this year already. Uh, hello to Kevin. He'll be tuning in as well as will uh, uh, Broad. Broad, he's live tonight. He's no uh, uh, n- no more exams for the moment, and he passed his gas time turbine one. Doing a bit of 944 Porsche welding uh, ooh, in the body shop within two or three weeks. He says, "Excellent, very good stuff." Uh, hello to Heath Giles. Sigin. I said Anita Roddick will be very disappointed in that. I guess. I see what you're saying. Uh, listening live from Camp Jandal, Heath Giles. He's in the Bathurst Paddock, where it's about three hours just under to the first practice for the Bathurst 1000 this year. Bacon, eggs, hash browns uh, uh, for breakfast, waiting for the track activity to start. Hello to James Atkinson, to Mickey Heth, uh, who's listening live, but as he says, unfortunately not from Bathurst. Indeed, so... Uh, Save Phil planning to listen live 
tonight, as is James Count. No, no, he's EFA's. He's on the way to uh, be a scout leader this evening. Uh, hello in Dubai to Phil Anson. Thanks for lending us your ears tonight, Phil. TM Phil Anson. Uh, nice to hear everyone and uh, hoping that we can still get to see him at the Dubai 24. Um, so are we. Uh, Alex Orkin, late finish at the GTO this evening. Hoping to be home for the show. Traffic willing, but be tuning in if the traffic is a bit naff. Uh, Uncle Kevin tuned in, having to catch up on the podcast after the great race. Jack Martin uh, is already at the mountain. Uh, hello to Ian McCarthy, to Dennis Foster, Merseyside Derby Knights, so or listening into the podcast. I understand that. That's all right. Listening live before giving my car a good clean inside and out, then working on my special design for Bathurst 12 Hours next year. Ted the Toyman is listening in, as is Patrick Drone. Uh, Stiggy Marley tuned in live. Doug Amner tuned in, as well as Blue Fiend working on a 982. Uh, that's our parish notices. Tim Gray's up in London on a pack show tonight. Tim, we have what? Tonight I'll be asking you to make 12 identical parry breasts. They should feature a glazed shoe pastry with a creme nougatine and on the side a banana sauce. Lovely. Wrong show? Tonight for new hopefuls. I think so, yes. It's semi-finals week. Uh, we've got not, uh, all the usual yet. features. It's the last of the first, first rounds this week. Fine. I'm a week ahead, a week behind ahead. Okay. Uh, we do have all the usual features. Uh, we'll have lots of news. Uh, we have lots of people to talk to. Uh, and we'll be announcing the final four nominees for this year's Show of the Year Awards, which are the nominees for the listener uh, vote. Yep. So uh, that will be announced sometime uh, in the second hour of the programme, probably around 20 to 10. You, uh, all right. specifically to tune into that but the rest of the show is very good as well so uh, sit down and uh, listen to all of it I like the sound of that uh, shuffle your papers Tim I suspect that we'll have a, a moment uh, just of, of brief uh, consideration in a second or two as we go to our top story on Midweek Motorsport tonight all the latest motorsport news from around the world Midweek Motorsport There's only one place to start tonight, and that's the death of Sir Frank Williams CBE at the age of 79. Uh, he was admitted into hospital on Friday and passed away peacefully on Sunday morning, surrounded by his family, the founder and former team principal of Williams Racing. John. Not for me to talk about Sir Frank. I only met him on a couple of times. One man who knew him very well, Andrew Marriott. Andrew, uh, first of all, uh, we should say what a life uh, that Sir Frank uh, led and we know he'd, he'd been struggling health-wise for a little while but it's still going to be a shock for the family and everyone else that that uh, he has succumbed. Absolutely, yes, and what an incredible life, you know, ducking and diving to get to where he went, a pioneer in many ways and one of the most successful all-time Formula One Chiefs, uh, all from his own hard work, toil, taking gambles, 
and being successful, picking the right drivers, picking the right people around him, sometimes picking the wrong ones, you know, nine constructors' titles, seven drivers' titles, 114 race wins. You know, what a career. Obviously, towards the end, it was so sad that the team, Team Willie, as we used to nickname it, wasn't as uh, the, 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 the magnificent team it was in the past. I wonder if it can come back. Who knows what the Doriton people might do with it, but uh, it's still a fantastic legacy for Sir Frank and and the team that I first knew was as Williams Racing yes, Cars or something like that when they were, when Frank was trading in Brabham spares and parts and so on. You, you can we can all quote uh, you know the the numbers, but that doesn't really tell. It certainly doesn't tell the Williams story. It absolutely doesn't tell. Sir Frank's personal story. He was a he was a pioneer in his early days, which some of our listeners might not realise. No, well, let's not forget, of course, he came to South Shields, your part of the world. Oh, John. yes, absolutely. Although there was, there was not a hint of, of uh, an accent, I have to say. Um, his father, you know, um, fr- um, flew Wellington bombers, but uh, I think, I believe, soon after Frank was born, left, left the family, but obviously uh, left enough me- money for him to have a, a public school education, and that you, you heard that. And later on, of course, he surrounded himself with, <coughs> excuse me, what we might call toffs, you know, the peers, courages of this world, and Sheridan Thin, who was related to the Marquis of Bath, and Charlie Crichton Stewart, of course, related to to uh, the Earl of Dumfries, uh, Jolly Dumfries, and so on. But yeah, the the the, um, the pioneering days are interesting because. He started off as a racing driver. I mean, he, he went to a race, got and um, started racing uh, an Austin A35. He crashed that, and he used some of the parts to build an Austin A40, all stripped out. It wasn't. Um, it was a, a real sort of modified saloon, and I, that's when I first became aware of him. When I think he won a race at Cadwell Park, and I subbed the copy from whoever wrote the story for Motoring News. So that's the first time I saw F. O. Williams. I thought it was flying officer Williams to start with. Very good. It wasn't, of course. It was it was Francis. Anyway, um, from from that um, he had a couple of Formula Three cars, and then he bought a decent Brabham BT15, and he went trailing around Europe, mainly racing in Scandinavia. And he won <laughs> he won just the one race at a place in Sweden called Sharpnack, um, now much forgotten, of course. But that persuaded him, really, that he wasn't going to be a, a great racing driver. So he got into this business of trading parts from a famous flat in Harrow, um, where lots of different racing drivers, including Piers Courage, lived. And it was through Piers Courage, who, of course, um, family um, were the big brewers, um, that he really sort of started to move up first, somehow getting enough money to run a Formula 2 car, and then, then, of course, the Brabham Formula One car. All the time, you know, he was ducking and diving at this time. And even the Brabham you know, that he ran in Formula One, that courage went so well in. That particular car um, was a, an ex-works car that had a Repco engine. It had to be re-engineered to get um, a Cosworth DFB in it. Um, but then uh, he, he moved on. And one of the things he did was run cars for other people. Now, oh, excuse me, John. <laughs> um, I remember going to Englishton and seeing two absolutely immaculate Brabham, uh, I can't remember if it was Formula Judy or Formula 3, it was just on that turn. One was run for a bloke called Sverre Thorodson, who was an Icelandic guy, and the other car was 
uh, Kinney Lau, who was an Indian. So he found these exotic drivers and he was running them. Now, people didn't do that in those days. In Formula 3, there was lots of factory cars like Lotus and Brabham and Merlin and Alexis and all these all these people who made these Formula 3 racing cars all had their factory cars with drivers who were paid. And then at the next level was all the dad and lad type operations where people just ran their own cars. But there weren't teams out there, pro teams, like the current Carlins or, or Fortex of this world that ran cars for you. So Frank was really a pioneer in that. And also a pioneer in, in getting sort of exotic car manufacturers involved. You know, he got to, from, the, from the Brabham, of course, he moved up to the De Tomaso, which was designed by, uh, by Delara. Um, De Tomaso, the Argentine guy. And that, of course, was the car that uh, so tragically Piers Courage was killed in at Zandvoort. But you know, it, it, that was a pioneering thing because, I mean, it's no different now to the Sauber team, you know, rebranding themselves as Alfa Romeo, really. No, true enough, true yeah. enough. He, he had... So, Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, so, but all this time, of course, Johnny was ducking and diving, didn't have enough money to do this properly. And, of course, everyone says he had, you know, he had his office in a telephone kiosk in the Slough Road, uh, Bath Road, Slough. Well, actually, what happened was he got locked out of the factory because he hadn't paid the rent, and so he had to use the use the telephone kiosk. A lot of people won't um, know what that is nowadays, to be honest. Long before yeah, the days of mobile, mobile <laughs> yeah, exactly. phones. What was he like? As, what was he like as an individual? He had a reputation. I I knew people who, who um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the breadth of, of his interest in in motorsport. But I certainly knew yeah. people who drove from him in, in touring cars, in British touring cars, in super tourists. Yeah. Um, had a reputation as being um, uh, pretty forthright, as being um, somewhat enigmatic, as setting drivers off against each other. He always wanted to get the the very the very best uh, out of of the drivers. Um, how did you find him? And 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 is is that reputation, which goes back some time now, of course, was that warranted? Absolutely warranted, John. And the word I had in my head as you were starting to ask the question is one you used. Enigmatic in a way. He wasn't a man of, of, of very many words, of course. Fiercely determined, uh, as we know, and always looking forward. If you, in the later times, if you asked him about the older days, he didn't want to talk about them. You know, I'm just interested in the race that was coming up. So, yes, I mean, he, I mean hugely fit, of course, until the accident. I mean, he. He was probably the fittest man in the paddock. He ran, ran a lot, ran every track, um, and used to run in Hyde Park. And sometimes, if you, sometimes it's difficult to get hold of. When so, um, one of my uh, fellow journalists knew where he ran, so he went and sort of accosted him as he ran round. But uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, he was a man of, of um, it's difficult to describe, really. But you know. You didn't get that much feedback from him. I, I launched lots of racing cars for him in our, in our sports marketing days. Um, we launched lots of racing cars for him. And I mainly dealt with, with Sheridan Thin or Charlie Crichton Stewart. And, and Frank just signed him off. And I'd go and see Frank. He'd give me a few quotes and stuff. But there was, there was not many niceties, you know. There was, not, there was no sort of general chit-chat. Um, it was all straight to the point. Yeah, this is what I think about this car. And write this, and this is the quote I want you to use. And um, thank you, and um, pick up the phone. You know? Thank you, and good night. <laughs> sort of kind like of thing. But um, John, I got a, just a few stories um, about about the, the, some of the three of the launches. Actually, the, the first one, I launched 
so as you know, the, I mean, everybody's seen it in the obituaries, but from from this from ducking and diving, and then going to uh, running the Brabham and the De Tomato and the Poly Toys, and then of course subsequently um, joining Walter Wolf. You didn't like being Walter Wolf chauffeur very much, um, but I think he did meet Patrick Head at Walter Wolf's actually, mm. um, and then setting up with Patrick Head and running the, the march for Patrick Neve the one year. And then, of course, they launched the FW06. Well, I launched that car at the famous um, carpet warehouse in Didcot. And um, there was only about 15 people at the launch. But fortunately, I managed to get the Vision News TV crew there. So the pictures went around the world. But that car was innovative, um, very technically innovative. And Patrick had put the oil tank in a completely different place um, to, to where they'd been. And that, that was, I mean, that car was a year too late, really, because, you know, aerodynamics was just a ground force had just come in through Lotus. Um, but anyway, we launched that car in a carpet warehouse. But the next one, I remember, we we got some sponsorship from Canon cameras and um, Keki Rosberg. We wanted Keki Rosberg was a driver. He wouldn't come because he was learning to um, fly a Learjet in Florida. And so everyone was fairly, you know, peeved about this. And the other driver was Mansell. But anyway, Keki Rosberg was, was was the big name at the time. And so I actually found a bloke who, who had a robot. <laughs> it was a sort of humanoid robot. And I, I decided this thing should be called Keki Robot. And we I had a race suit made for this thing. And this bloke, Jeremy Barrett, drove this thing from a joystick behind the stage. It was actually, we did it on the stage of a, a, a West London, a, you know, a West End uh, theatre and um and we launched the canon sponsorship using this robot we sort of spoke it was completely ridiculous i mean how the canon cameras people agreed to it i don't know but it made the national news so you know i i came out smiling with that but, but perhaps the most famous one is when we launched little bats um sponsorship which was in the didcot factory and what we did the museum there was much smaller than it is now and there was a sort of workshop area with a, with, with a roller blind that came up. So we decided to have the car in the roller blind and we'd have basically a smoke machine and an ice machine. So there was lots of dry ice and smoke and stuff around. And uh, when, we did, when we did the rehearsal, it was all very underwhelming. So I told the blokes, <laughs> the technical blokes, to crank up the smoke. And the, Well, when we did the actual launch, this roll of this garage door came up. There the car sitting in it, Thierry Bootson, um, and Ricardo Patrese was in this, and it just went into overdrive, and there was bloody smoke and everything everywhere, and it sort of swept out of the out of this garage area where the new car was, and all over Sir Frank, and then sort of Boots and Patrese sort of came out of this smoke, you know, with their arms sort of swishing the smoke back, and it finally faded. And afterwards, I thought, oh, Frank's going to get me out of a dressing down about this. And um, afterwards, I said to Frank, I'm oh, sorry about all that smoke. The machine sort of got a bit out of control. And he just sort of raised his eyebrows and there was a wry smile. But he, he didn't actually say anything at all. What? But I mean, at one stage, they were completely covered in smoke. Because at that stage, he was in, in the wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that, of course, is how a lot of people will remember him. Because for yeah. um, most of our younger listeners' lifetimes, Sir Frank will have been... Um, following that accident coming down down the hill from Le Castellier, from Paul Ricard, will have been uh, in the wheelchair. Longest surviving um, quadriplegic. Um, yeah. uh, again, aided by his 
it, bloody mindedness in some respect, and also his um, his innovation um, about how he was going to eat and how he was going to yep, live yep. live his life. Um, that, in some ways, that crash still slightly shrouded in mystery, Andrew. Oh, not at all, John. Not at all. Um, I've been to the site actually. Me, me too. It was it it was a back route from Rickard. The stupid thing was, you know, the test was still going on. And he, 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 I think he had some some running event to go to, so he wanted to go back early. He had Peter Windsor, the journalist now, but of course in those days, uh, team manager, in the car with him. He did not have Nelson Piquet in the car, as was written in some reports this week. Piquet was still at the track testing. Um, it, it, in, in one way, it wasn't a big accident. It was a Sierra hire car, rather strange shape. He wasn't concentrating. He was talking animatedly to Peter and put a wheel into the dirt. I've seen the spot where he went off and not very far down into a field, but the car and the seat collapsed in an awkward way. So Peter was completely uninjured, apart from a couple of bruises. He climbed out. But just the way it it caught Frank as the the roof line crushed down, I I think. Um, No, he wasn't paying attention. He admits that. He admitted that afterwards, you know, it's just... And he, he was a bit of a lunatic on the road anyway, so I don't know, maybe they were going a bit too fast. But um, and what happened, though, Peter, I think, managed to flag down some motorcyclist who then went to the track. And then uh, Nelson Piquet and Frank Durney, and I think even Mansell, I think they, all, they came up came to down. the site yeah. and obviously realised how serious it was. But, yeah, what a terrible act, particularly for a man who was so fit, you know, as so, yes. I mentioned a little while ago. But... Um, yeah, but maybe maybe John, we should just talk about some of the drivers a little bit. Well, I was I, I was I was just think mm. I, I was just thinking what I, what I'd like to explore actually is is Frank and his his broad again. People will think of him as Formula One. I've mentioned British touring cars. Um, he had a, yep. he had a wild knowledge. Uh, he was laser focused on anything that he did, and I think yeah. you know you'd say that whether it was his fitness, whether it was his business. Um, Formula One obviously took up a lot of time, but but Williams and Sir Frank wasn't just Formula One based. Correct. I mean, that 1999, the BMW which won Le Mans, that fabulous prototype, was one of the most beautiful Le Mans cars, I think, um, designed uh, by a team with Graham Humphreys in it, um, won Le Mans, and um, that was very much a Williams car. And as you mentioned, you know, the, the Renault Touring Car Programme, which was very successful, you know, mainly headed by Jason Plato. I think you might know the story. But Jason you know, doorstepped Sir Frank, arriving at the track to try and get yep. the drive, and indeed he did, because Frank liked that sort of thing, you know. Um, but just with with, um, with the drivers, but Piers Courage was obviously his favourite, because they were mates, you know, mm. from, from, you know, their early 20s in the same flat. And then I'd have to say Alan Jones probably was was his other big favourite. He liked, liked the gritty Australian. But he also liked he liked some of the more exotic people like Montoya and mm-hmm. Reutemann to a degree. Uh, and there's others he didn't like at all, Ralph Schumacher being one of them. I mean, he, he really resisted Ralph Schumacher driving, but BMW absolutely insisted. And of course, you, you know the, the Patrick, and, and I think Patrick Head and and, and Frank, you know, it's a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship. They work very well together, mm. and neither of them were, I think, very good with, with putting their arm around drivers and making no. them feel wanted. Uh, Mansell, 
well, this was a pa Patrick Head and Frank decided the best idea was to get him to the circuit in a helicopter, uh, lynch him down, you know, lower him down into the cockpit. When he won the race, just get the helicopter and put, pluck him out of the, the car, <laughs> put him back in the helicopter and take mm -hmm. him away and not have anything else to do with him. I used to joke about that. But, I mean, of course, Mansell did a fantastic job for them. Mm. Uh, let's, uh, and uh, I haven't seen any quotes from for Nigel yet. No, that. interesting. But, yeah, very, very interesting. Finish, finish off with, with the thought. Yeah. Um, we, we know how difficult um, the, the family dynamics were. Um, yeah. I'm not sure this is the time, if I'm honest, to, to talk about that. I, we could say it was a one-off. Um, many people of that era were. Will we see his like again? You know, as I said, and a lot of people have done, last of the, the F1 privateers, in every sense, he was the last one out the door just a couple of, of seasons ago. Has the sport changed so much now that, that a young Frank Williams-type uh, person you know, would be able to get into Formula 1, could get in Formula 1 and could stay in Formula 1, Andrew? Absolutely not, John. It has changed completely. I mean, to sum up, Frank, he was resilient. He was single-minded. He surrounded himself with very good people. Fiercely um, independent? Terribly independent. Because he, originally, in the early days when they were doing really well, um, Mansour Auger tried to buy into the firm. Mm -hmm. Frank wouldn't have that. So Mansour Auger of, of Technics Avantgarde Tag, he went off and joined McLaren, of course, and bought into that firm. Then BMW tried to buy the company, and Frank resisted that. And um, subsequently, of course, Walter Wolf, not Walter Wolf, sorry, Toto Wolf, invested in the company, and I think wanted to buy more of it. And so that didn't happen. So he went away and spent all his money with with Mercedes. So I think, in a way, some of Frank's decisions, you know, weren't that great. We just didn't mention Senna either. Obviously, mm. Senna was a great favourite of Frank's. But, you know, he was indecisive there. You know, he gave Senna his first ever test when he was still in Formula 3 and then didn't actually sign him, although he knew he was brilliant. <laughs> Nobody was really quite sure why. So, you know, Frank, as I said, you know, absolutely brilliant man, all that success. But you know, some of the things he did were, were a bit difficult to work out, to be honest. Uh, um, stepped away, and the the family stepped away uh, as well. But a bit, it, it's a big loss to the family, and he's got many friends. A lot of people started their careers and been given their breaks by Sir Frank Williams, many of whom you and I know quite well. And the outpouring that we've seen uh, uh, from people of of a couple of different generations, I think, speaks to how Sir Frank was. Not always the easiest person to work with or for, but certainly a character and certainly a person who was prepared to do things his way, which sometimes gave people an opportunity, Andrew. Absolutely. Yes, just a massive personality, you know, a massive part of, of the success that is British motor racing and uh, British Formula One as well. You know, at the top we listed the, the you know, 114 Grand Prix wins. I mean, just incredible that someone could do that from, you know, those early beginnings. Uh, you know, I take my hat off to the, just the sheer bloody mind, the single mindedness of the man. Uh, and let's not forget the part that Patrick had played in, in, in this success story as well. Andrew Marriott, uh, thank you very much. And uh, thank you. Uh, 
John for the questions to Andrew. Uh, joined now by our Formula One correspondent, Nick Damon. Good evening, Nick. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, John. Good evening, everybody. Hello, Andrew. Obviously, I, I saw him last week. but Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm good, man. Nick, you your your entrance into the Formula One arena came very much at the height of uh, William's success in the mid '90s, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I when I when I flounced into the pit lane uh, <laughs> back in '96, yeah, there were, there were the only question that year was whether it was going to be Hill or Villeneuve, Villeneuve who won the championship. Um, you know, with uh, Ferrari obviously not really competing. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, it was it was yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting here. Those stories that Andrew tells are just fantastic. It's but yeah, they, they, I think it kind of the the, the 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 glory years really what those '92 through to '97, '98, uh, sorry '91. You know, where they had this level of domination, which we kind of you know what we, everyone goes, oh, it's dominant, it's boring, it's dominant. They, they seem to forget there's been domination the whole time, and that was their area of domination. Any reason they didn't absolutely nail everything down was because we had a strange situation where there was a one preordinate driver. Um, whereas now we have two, three, or four drivers who can do it. But once with the loss of uh, uh, Senna and uh, past retirement, suddenly you know, Schumacher won two world championships against the grain, really. One of them because he crashed the guy off, and the other one because there was some issues internally. But yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt. I that mean, to be fair, that car was legal as well, wasn't it, Nick? Pardon? Schumacher's car was illegal, though, wasn't it? Oh, don't, don't, 94 should be scrubbed off for so many reasons. Um, but the thing about it is, is I think, I think this is, it, it, Frank. Frank was very much of his time, and as I think as John and, and Andrew alluded to, it could never happen again. You couldn't yeah. start something from scratch in F1 because you know you, you'd need to have 100, 200, or 300 million dollars to do it. Um, but you know, running that period, which he did do from the the late 70s all the way through to you know really about 1999, when they effectively uh, was it 2000, when they tied up with BMW. Um, you know, they, they did as well as any as, as any other team could, and and, and constantly produced good cars. And it was, it was, I think, yeah, it, it was certainly after they, they shot themselves in the foot through in losing the BMW. It was, it was always quite a sad decline, but that's just the way it was. I mean, they they end up being out of time and and out of their time, as as were were Frank and um, Patrick. But you know, it doesn't take away, you know, the, the a fantastic 25 years prior to that where they absolutely dominated and and, and realistically they, I, think, I think they were everybody I, mean, I think in the uk i just feel they were everybody's team i think yeah. I, I, everyone was a williams fan we've said that before sorry was that switch from renault to bmw almost the beginning of the end for the success of well don't williams. forget it wasn't the switch. it went renault then it went um super tech engines which were old renault mm. engines and this is in the day when Formula One was as it should be, where you spend as much money as possible. And the, the works engines were gaining eight to nine horsepower per race. So at the end of the season, they had 100 more than they started with. Whereas <laughs> the, the, the ones where you, you, know, you, you bought them off secondhand off Flavio Briatore, um, ah. you know, you had to, exactly, um, were, were, were horribly underpowered. And that's, you know, you know, that's why they needed to get into, into a works deal. But at that point, in around 2000, suddenly the manufacturers got reinterested again, and we had that mm. huge boom, which only ended uh, with the financial crash in 2008, where it all manufacturer, manufacturer, manufacturer. At that point, the garagists got left behind. What was um, what were your memories of Sir Frank Nick? Did you did you um, have interactions with him? Obviously, you were yeah, working in the pits for Formula it's, One, and yeah, it's it's really interesting. Obviously, Frank. Um, was always behind the screens in the in the garage because that's where he was you know, in his, his area 
in, in his wheelchair, sometimes in, in, in his standing frame, which was, which was quite interesting. Um, and interesting, that kind of limited the amount of times we could talk to him initially because we couldn't get the cameras in there. Uh, the RF cameras didn't go very well yes. in the back of the back of yes. the garage. Good point. Um, and there was also kind of it was a weird kind of um, reverence within within from really almost oh you know, you know I don't know whether it was kind of a I suppose it's in, perhaps in perhaps it may even have been a, a little bit. Of, this is this is not against anybody individual. Perhaps about the feelings of the time that yeah about you know whether it was it was right to show people in a you know in a in a, in a less than 100 percent state. Hmm. But say towards the back end of the time I was doing that, we, we used to speak to Frank quite regularly, and um, you know he was really a very 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 good interview because he was you asked him a sensible question, he gave you a sensible answer. Yes, absolutely. Didn't hide it. Told you what he thought. Um, you know, he, he, I always, he always, because the weird thing about, him, and I don't even because of the way he had to learn to talk after the accident, that kind of forced breathing, he always felt quite bad making him talk. It seemed to, it seemed to our uneducated ears, it was a little bit, a little bit painful. But you know, he was just, he was, he was incredible. Uh, you know, the thing about it is, absolutely, you know, he may have broken his neck, but it didn't affect one milli, you know, one, one, you know, cell of his brain. No. Everything was still there. Good point. Um, yeah. And, and and you kind of wonder, I mean, it's interesting, it, 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 what we'll never know is whether he would have more success or less success without the accident. Because in many ways, you know, in a lot of stuff I've read, they think it's it may driven. have grounded him slightly and he may have actually become a better manager because he was he had he had less to focus on. Or... Uh, you said he would give you a good answer to a good question, but he also had a very dry sense of humour, didn't he, Nick? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you could get things wrong. Uh, never happened to me, of course. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, he, 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 there was some, I think, I think it's a bit different now, but yeah, there was a very different relationship between, um, interviewers and interviewees back in the, yeah, really up until the, the changes that Bernie actually brought in first, all the pens and all the organized interview times and everything else. It was very much a case. It was, it was one up from doorstepping really. And you just kind of just try to get, and you had to kind of gain the confidence of people with, with speaking to Frank, it was, you know, we, 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 we always go through PR, which is often Annie. So that wasn't a problem. Um, you know, you, the legend. you had to make sure you, the legend, yeah, you had to make sure you were going to ask him a sensible question. You had to make sure, you know, you weren't wasting his time, you know, um, in fairness, he was he was much, <laughs> yeah. It, it has to be said you were, you were much more likely to get a a, a stern rebuff from uh, from Patrick if you asked him something dumb. That was sure. Uh, Nick uh, and Andrew, thank you very much for your remembrance of Sir Frank Williams, who died on Sunday. We pass our condolences, of course, to the rest of the Williams family, and to all of his friends and colleagues. Very, some very close friends who are friends of ours as well, and you mentioned one of them there, Anne Bradshaw. We're thinking particularly about uh, the uh, the people who knew Sir Frank and uh, worked with him um, and knew him well at this difficult time. Tim, a couple of more Formula One stories before we move on. Uh, yes, the first one uh, is about a driver who is leaving uh, home or leaving his home to yes. buy a new home. Well, I know. This will be interesting, won't it? Um, Lando Norris um, is now earning a very large amount of money uh, in F1. So he's decided to do what every other F1 driver does and go and live in Monaco. So what, we all say? What's well, going to happen to his little semi-invoking? Yes, let's just see if he gets the same backlash as Lewis did for doing the same thing. Mm. Because if everyone's an indication of how all people are not judged equally... That could be it. 
Well said, Nick. And uh, secondly, uh, Cyril Abitaboul has finally got his tattoo. I saw that. Yes, I was. I, I've seen it. I've seen it close up, but I'm not really quite sure. Did you, did you work out what it was? <laughs> is this like? Is, it... is this? Uh, is this like the episode of Friends when uh, <laughs> when they were meant to get tattoos and, and Phoebe said she'd had the whole world, but it was just very small. It was a single dot. Is that it? Is yeah. that what he's had? Well, no, he's got it. It's on his calf. It's a reasonable about, 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 about oh, I don't know, that by 10. But I couldn't for life me work out what it was. I mean, it could be I had a bad angle or, I, or my brain wasn't working. Do you have any ideas, Tim? It's meant to be the truck, isn't it? No, it's not. No, that was. I, no, I it haven't was seen it. The only the photo I've seen is um, the one of his facial expression while it was being done. Um, no, I've seen a picture of it. But but I, there is a video I, I may of it well being, be being done. A bit dumb, so, if anybody so, on the collective knows um, what it is, uh, please tell me. There is a video uh, of it being done, so we'll uh, take it a look looks, at that. It looks like a polar bear <laughs> sticking its head out of a big A. Do you agree? You can't work out what it is, John. Well, no, I've just, I've just said what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it probably means something to Cyril. Mm. Or to it, Daniel. It isn't a honey badger, apparently. He says that. Um, Who knows? But it, it, nobody's saying what it is. So anyway, mm. honey badger okay. in the Renault logo. It's half. It's half of the Renault logo, isn't it? It's the top half of the Renault logo with some kind of with the of, honey badger. Um, Apparently, Shay's Shay, yes. watched the video, which is which is absolute devotion to the two. Uh, He's two only had half of it done, though, quite clearly. <laughs> well, you never is get it them in done in one go, do you? Half, yeah. Right, okay. not, it's a single colour, you do, yeah. Mm. Okay, let's move on. Nick, stay with us because we have some motorcycling news, and a legend Ooh. is returning to. Well, I was going to say the track there, but to the roads actually, well, yeah, and I mean, it's not yeah, a valet story. No, we constantly go on about how Valley is amazing for continuing to be at the top of his well, well at the top of the charts, not at the top of the game. What was he? Forty-three. We finally mm. retired. Well, imagine find someone older who actually has a really good chance of winning the race as he's entering in, in motorcycling, and that's of course um, uh, Mr. John McGuinness, who returns to Honda uh, at the TT. Because he hasn't been hasn't been a TT for the last two years, and I think prior to that, John had retired, hadn't he, after mm-hmm. one accident too many? Yes. Um, and he, but obviously what's happened is he's he, he, he taken his last two years of rest and gone, you know what, I feel fine now. I'll give it another go. It's huge because he's got a massive following. This is yeah. full factory Honda. It's not just for the TT. There is a, a road racing... Uh, see, I'm, I'm, I was going to say road racing circuit. But circuit. That's, yeah, yeah. Yes, there's a road racing series. There we go. That's better. Uh, and he's going to be riding the latest version of the Fireblade uh, throughout that, uh, and Honda have really got behind this. They're they're excited about it, and clearly, John is as well. Uh, we, we've been swapping some tweets with a lot of our friends in motorsport who are mad for motorcycles. Already, the Frank Kitty boys have said this <laughs> this looks like a road trip. Jason Plato, who the last time I went out on a motorcycle with him, he just passed his test and bought a Ducati. And the much-missed Richard Burns, whose anniversary was, was last week, was on his Triumph, and I was on my Suzuki, and we went out. Um, uh, who else? Karen Chandock wants to come. I, I, think this, I think there's a road trip, and it doesn't clash with Le Mans this year, with Le Mans being just a tiny bit later because of how the week ends fall. Um, race week is the week before Le Mans, so that's actu- there's actually half a chance I might be able to get to it. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, the, the TT is is a fantastic event. It's you know, it, it has struggled with safety, mm. um, but uh, no, I mean, I think I think it's great to have its biggest name back in back in the saddle, literally. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. Uh, Nick Damon there, and you're listening to Midweek Motorsports, Series 16, Episode 47, a packed second hour tonight uh, with our big interview being uh, the head of uh, Chevrolet Motorsports, Laura, uh, Laura Wontrop-Klausner, who will be uh, with us just after 9 o'clock. We will have some Visit Cayman Island Sports car news coming up next, actually, but not before Tim tells us about some future programming. Tim, what do you have? Well, following us tonight at 10, it's this month's edition, because it being the 1st of December, uh, this month's edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And Mm -hmm. if you listen to the November issue, you'll have known that they discussed the worst ever single-seaters. And I listened to this and I thought, Hmm, techno Formula One car, yeah, that was pretty terrible, wasn't it? But I don't think they really scratched the surface of bad single-seater cars. Um, (laughs) So this week, or this month, uh, their guest is me. Uh, So I'll be talking to Paul Tarsi about some even worse single-seater cars. He only let me have three, so I've picked three really terrible single-seater cars for different reasons. Um, uh, And uh, they'll be... uh, I think opening up a vote on Facebook during the show uh, to see whether the listener thinks that my bad single-seater cars are worse than the uh, one that they chose uh, last month. Also tonight, uh, it is the luckiest racing drivers of all time being discussed by Joe Bradley, Jim Roller and Paul Jurd. No one's lucky, of course. There's no, no such thing as luck. What was, what's the saying? The harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, anyway, that's Historic Racing News Radio Show, which is tonight at 10 here on RS1. Well, delighted to say that we are welcoming back into the ranks of sports car racing Will Owen. We'll let him uh, tell us exactly what is going on in a moment. But first of all, Will, welcome to midweek motorsport and you, you effectively took a year out last year I, I would say you probably didn't miss very much there was still racing going on but in terms of traveling you certainly didn't miss very much was that part of the decision making process um well first of all thanks for having me and i'm super excited to be back in just in racing in general um and well the decision making i mean i'm really glad first of all that i took a year off um the decision making process wasn't really as much about travel but um, I just wanted to try something new and I didn't really have a sort of outside perspective of, of what life was like. So I've always loved racing and appreciated it, but I kind of wanted to see, um, yeah, what life was like outside of it. Um, and then, well, it's been fun, but obviously, uh, I'm back knocking at the door again. So, uh, what did yeah, you I'm do then? Excited. Come on, tell us, what did you do? Don't, you don't have to give us the gory details. I know that you're in Austin, which prides itself on, on keeping everything weird. It's a very um, interesting culture, big music scene down there. So, so what did you do in the, the 12 months that you, you dragged yourself away from racetracks? Well, uh, I'm pretty lucky because I, had, uh, I, I got a good job right away. Um, I, I really wanted to learn some new skills and do some new things. So I, I didn't do anything too weird. Um, but I started working for a company called Valkyrie that, uh, 
is an applied science company that builds AI solutions and machine learning. So it's really fascinating stuff. And I was in the business development uh, department there. So I learned a ton about um, technology and about business in general. So I've been building a lot of skills in that, in that area and there's still a lot to learn. And I think I'm actually gonna keep working next year, but that pretty much took up all my time. And it went from, uh, <laughs> went from off during the days and working out a little bit and racing on the weekends to a full-time job uh, during the week. But I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's taught me so much that I think is gonna translate over to, to being professional in racing. Uh, and so just when you thought you got out, you were dragged back in to quote the, the, the movie uh, with United Autosport. Great set of people. Tell us a little bit about how that's come about and, and what you're going to be doing in 2022. Yeah, so I guess I wasn't really thinking about driving until uh, September or October. And I actually was fortunate to go to a lot of the uh, I still went to a lot of IMSA races this year and was around the paddock. Um, and so I saw the United guys quite a bit. And they were like, you know, when are you when are you coming back? And for the first half of the year, I was like, I don't know. I don't really have a, a timeline. I haven't really thought about it. But then something hit me in like September or I, yeah, it was like beginning of October. And I was like, you know, I totally would drive if the opportunity was there. Um, I don't know why, just just the switch flipped. Um, and so then I, I start. I was, I've been in touch with United and then uh, I talked to Richard and he asked me Richard Dean, uh, yeah. what I was doing. Richard Dean, yeah. Um, and he asked me what I was doing next year. Uh, and Basically, there was a couple week period where it was like, there's a chance you could you could drive with us in WEC. And if you're interested, then we can see if we could make it happen. Um, and it took me a couple weeks to like decide, yeah, I'm 100,000 percent in. I'm going to do everything that it takes and be better than I've ever been. So um, but once I decided that um, I went to Road Atlanta and saw them and, and yeah, uh, basically the deal is I'm doing the WEC with Philippe and Phil on the 22 car. Right. And then I'm so so that's that, and- that's Phil Hudson. And- that's right. Uh, Philippe Albuquerque, yeah? That's right. Yeah, okay, good. Albuquerque, as we have to call him now. Albuquerque, I guess that's the new uh, nickname. That's, that's <laughs> right. So, so great. Uh, uh, but also going to be doing stuff in your home country as well, in the US. Well, that's right. I'm going to do uh, Daytona with United as well in, in LMP2. Um, this is going to be with uh, Jim McGuire, Phil Hansen, and Guy Smith. Oh, cool. Um, and so I've done Daytona twice and once with United already, but... Um, they needed a fourth driver and it works out perfectly. I think that's the best possible way to sort of, um, you know, prepare for the WEC season. Although I want to be, you know, prepared to win the Daytona race too, of course, but um, two 24 hour races in a year is perfect. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. You're no stranger to Richard Dean uh, and to the rest of the team. Obviously you've, you've raced with them uh, before uh, as recently as what 2020 in, in the European Le Mans series in LMP2. Um, and, so you know them, you know the operation. Did that make the decision a wee bit easier to make when that switch flipped that you could go back to somebody you knew rather than having to to form a new relationship, if you like? Totally. It totally, totally did. And, um, you know, like I'm comfortable with, you know, I know a lot of the people in the organization. Um, I'm, we, we, I really trust them, um, you know, as far as like engineering and, and setting up a good car, but then also on the team side. Um, it's such a great environment. I couldn't ask for anything better. Um, and so that's, that's part of it. Um, and then also, you know, driving with Philippe and Phil is also super, I guess, comforting since I haven't been in a car for a year because they know what's going on. I've worked with them before and I know I work really well with them. So those two things coming together, you know, going to be in a, a, a good organization that I know is going to have a quick car uh, with two really good teammates. It's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just super exciting and it's an amazing opportunity. 
It's an, exi- um, it's an exciting time, Will, for, for sports car enthusiasts and, and presumably for, for drivers as well because we're going into this, this time of great change, but change that we've now sort of wound ourselves up about when we're expecting it. It's not as if it's being dropped on us. And it would seem to me that opportunities looking forward for through 22, let's get 22 out of the way, but, you know, <laughs> everybody's super excited about 23 and what that brings. Is that another part of the thinking here from, from your side of things? Uh, to be honest, I hadn't really thought, I mean, I'm, I share in the excitement and joy for just what's coming in, in, in sports car racing, for sure, like everybody. So I hadn't really thought about it in terms of, you know, would I be driving at that point or not, you know? But I'm just excited. I want to be around the paddock in general for, for when that comes and for when all those amazing changes happen. Um, so I don't know. I, I haven't thought about past 2022 at all. And I just want to do really, I feel like um, my, my performance and the way this year goes will, will tell a lot for, um, you know, what I'll do in the future. You, you've, you've won in European Le Mans Series. You, you won it at Ricard, if, if memory serves, uh-huh. back in... Um... Well, that would have been actually 19, although it sort of straddled the, the, the See, years, didn't it? Yeah. We won, oh, sorry, we won the first race in Ricard in 2020. In 2020, yeah. And then, yeah. That's right. And then we went back to Ricard again. Yes, that's, that's right. The first one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so, you know, that, that you're the top dogs in LMP2 and ELMS. You're the top dogs. You're the fastest cars. Uh, you're going to have to deal with, in, in, uh, in WEC, you're going to have to deal with these new hypercars. Uh, which are getting faster and faster, uh, as well as some very, very competitive other teams and drivers. You're jumping right into the shark pool here, my man. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be tough. And uh, I guess I had the only year um, I've, I've done Le Mans. Fortunately, I've had the Le Mans experience, so I know what it's like to drive with the LMP1 cars, and they're all good drivers, so it's it's not not too challenging. Um, but jumping in is definitely my main concern right now, uh, since I haven't. I, the last time I drove. Um, a race car was October 2020. So I have a lot of cobwebs to shake off. Right. I have a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, there's only six races in the season. So the first one counts. Um, it's, you know, as much as any of them, you yeah. really have to be ready for it. And so that's the thing that's definitely on my mind right now. Um, you know, I'm obviously working out and playing sim more than ever, <laughs> which is so, so awesome. Um, but I have to figure out how to make sure my, uh, you know, I can deliver what we need to, uh, yeah, there's to overcome the competition. There's, there's so many really good teams in, in WEC right now. So that's exciting, but it's also like um, sort of energizing too, you know. A bit daunting perhaps. Yeah, da- well. daunting is, yeah, it is daunting. But, um, but again, uh, because of the familiar environment, it it's, uh, feels good. And you're going to start off, of course, with you're going to get a, a, a little run at Daytona. Yeah. Um, which is great. And so there's the raw, then there's the, the 24 yeah. there. And effectively, you've got the 36 hours of Florida, haven't you? Because you're going to go yeah. straight down to Sebring. And on the Friday night before Mobile One 12 hours of Sebring, it's a 1,000-mile race for, for you guys. Right. That, that physically is very, very punishing indeed. How are you, how's your mindset for that at this distance? Um, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely thinking about that a lot and, you know, making sure that in those couple months I can be ready for it. I, I do have a, a reference since I did it in 2019 mm. in the, uh, in the DPI car. Uh, and that was very challenging, but, um, well, I was racing a lot then. So yeah, that, that, that's something to keep in mind. Um, since I'll be coming in cold. I mean, the main thing I'm thinking about are just like the special driving muscles, you know, like the neck and the, the, the sort of arms that you, you know, just the stuff that's like 
harder to train. You know, the best way to train it is being in the car. So that's what I'm most aware of. Um, and, and, you know, I'm going to, you know, find any testing opportunities I can as well. Yeah, so. just, just remember you're using the back straight pits as well for the WEC. So you come in before turn 16. You don't go all the way back around to the front. front I have forgotten. Again. So thank you. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're figuring this out. <laughs> Final question for you. Tough one, perhaps. Yeah. But I, I know how competitive you are. I know how driven, pun absolutely intended, you are. So do you set yourself challenges for, for, for next year? I mean, most drivers would, would tell me that, it's a, it can sometimes be a double-edged sword to do that. Yeah, I mean, I always know that I cannot, you know, control my results uh, at the end of the day. So that, that calms everything down a little bit. But I want to know, you know, I look at how I drove in 2020 and I see a lot of really high points. And I also see a lot of places that I can really improve. Um, I can be more committed in some places. And that is, I feel like that's probably the biggest perspective I've gained over this year off is Good. what it's going to take to improve those areas, what it's going to take for more commitment sort of on the track, especially, but, um, you know, in other areas too. So championship goal, contender, you want to be a championship contender? Of course, of course. Oh. Yeah. But I, I think I sort of, right now I'm just focusing on how do I, how am I going to be better than I was in 2020? And then we'll continue from there and hopefully that will put us right in the right spot, you know, so. Well, we wish you the best. Um, say hi to the guys at United. We know how hard they've been working uh, during the, the last couple of years as all teams uh, have, have been doing. I'll, I'll say this, but clearly with that information that you've just given us, I think you're going to have a very happy Christmas and New Year. Don't eat too much of the goodies and we'll see you on track at, at Daytona for the, the Rolex 24. Definitely. See you there. Super excited for it. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Uh, Will Owen joining us uh, for uh, to give us the details on his announcement uh, that he's going back to WEC and a bit of IMSA as well at Daytona with United Autosports. Thanks to Charlotte uh, Lumley for sorting that one out for us. Shea Adam uh, with us uh, before we hit half time for a bit more Visit Cayman Island sports car Roundup. Good to good to see Will back. Uh, he's been enjoying his life quite clearly and learning some new skills uh, away from the track. And one of his teammates he mentioned there, Shea, uh, Phil Hansen. We're going to see a little bit more of him than just a Daytona in IMSA next year. Yes, and hello, by hello. the way. Sorry, uh, hello, United <laughs> announced earlier this week their lineup for the Rolex, including Will Owen, but also for the endurance races. So it'll be Jim McGuire and Guy Smith, uh, we believe, for a full season. Let's see if that pans out for United. But Hansen in the car for Daytona, Sebring, Watkins Glen, mm. and Petit Le Mans at the end of the year. That is a very potent LMP2 machine. Yeah, very much so. Phil's uh, uh, driving's uh, just come on leaps and bounds in the, the last 18 months two years be interesting to see how he gets on well we don't know actually whether Gary Robertshaw is coming across he's worked I think pretty much exclusively with Gary um, in his work so far and he's driving so far with uh, United um, someone else coming back to uh, IMSA um, perhaps a little bit of a surprise this is Algarve Pro Racing uh, we're going to have those guys back next year as well yeah, the big announcement from them this week was their full season return to WEC uh, without um, Roman Rusinov in the driver's seat. But they will be doing the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona in the LMP2 category. So that adds a little bit of uh, IMSA mm. intrigue. Yeah, absolutely. Good to see Stuart and Sam Cox coming over the water. And will be interesting to see how Roman 
goes as someone not behind the wheel. Um, WEC for high class as well, but again with with a US component. This seems to be a a, 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 a bit of a theme that we're going through here. Everybody wants to come play at the Rolex. Uh, yes, high class with an IMSA LMP2 program. They've also added the Asian Le Mans series as of this week. So that's going to be a different look for the Danish team. High class did run the Rolex this past year. And while we're speaking about the Asian Le Mans series, there was a contract extension that was mm. announced this week. Three more years with Michelin. Excellent news for everyone involved. Yeah, they've done a, done a very good job. Let's, let's quickly jump into LMP3 with an announcement there. The, the, the news is coming thick and fast in sports car <laughs> racing, so we'll, we'll rattle through some of these. Yeah, it really is. Uh, Andretti Autosport continuing their progress as an IMSA team, learning and looking potentially to the future. The LMP3 team is back again this year. Jarrett Andretti once again driving that car for what's expected to be the full season. Remember, they missed the first couple of rounds, the first two endurance races. They were in the prototype challenge category, uh, but they will be teaming up. It'll be Jarrett Andretti and Josh Burden, the Australian, mm. pairing up for the full season joined by Gabi Chavez and Rasmus Lind for the Rolex. They've yet to announce which of those drivers will be their endurance driver, but Rasmus has been driving with Performance Tech, so they've stolen him away. Uh, let's stay in the U.S., head up to Dallas, which is where we find uh, Archangel, who are looking for some new customers here. So Archangel is Mike Johnson's team. It existed back in the Grand Am days. It went away, came back. Uh, it's been running Magnus this last year and of course Volt racing as well they have parted ways and Mike Johnson at uh, Road Atlanta most recently I saw him having conversations with several people of interest he could really help out another team but basically looking to lend his racing expertise to a team in the paddock who perhaps needs somebody good on the pit stand and he's very good indeed in, in all in all fairness. News of a manufacturer change for Ted Giovannis Motorsport, which is I think caught everybody on the hop. This one caught me by surprise because I'd heard they were in talks with another manufacturer, but indeed it makes a lot of sense. TGM races Porsches in multiple series, and now they will be racing Porsches in every series in which they compete, stepping away from the Chevy Camaro, no surprise about that. But they are going to a brand new Cayman Club Sport RS, a beautiful car that they've ordered two of them. They're getting them delivered uh, within the next couple of weeks. They'll be doing some testing and then rocking up to the roar with two new Porsches. I've got one more uh, WEC story, but I want to do uh, something that's been bubbling under for a little while. We've been talking about the Rolex. It's only days away um, <laughs> Roman Grosjean Wayne Taylor Racing the rumour won't go away what do we know yeah uh, that as of right now it is a rumour have not been able to get confirmation from the team but of course we won't get that until the announcement comes out it's interesting because Grosjean has very strong Honda ties of course uh, the Acuras in terms of a DPI there is only one available car in which to put drivers now that we know that Elio Castroneves and Simon Pagano are in the Meyershank Racing Acura with Ollie Jarvis and Tom Blomqvist for the Rolex, which means that if Grosjean was going to be making a sports car debut, it would be with Wayne Taylor Racing. They do have a reputation of getting phenomenal drivers mm. and celebrities for that race. It fits the bill, but I'm not going to make an announcement until I read the headlines. <laughs> 
It'd be a big deal. It would be a big deal for it everybody. It would be a big deal. Yeah. It would a... be really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> f- for everybody concerned as well. Let, let's finish off this little bit of uh, it Shares part of it with a, a, a WEC LMP2 story, Shear. And, and this is Nico Muller, who is uh, heading back to sports cars. Of Audi fame, he's mm. joining an LMP2 team called Vector Sport. New team coming into the World Endurance Championship. Uh, last time we saw that was a very successful team this year in the form of Team WRT. So I'm expecting big things from them. And he's been given special dispensation to do that from yes. Audi. Shea, thank you very much for the moment. Quick bit of breaking news. There was a fire at Aston Martin F1 uh, this evening at Brackley. Uh, the, uh, a small fire in the extraction system of the wind tunnel. It has been extinguished. Uh, so if those of you seeing some of that on Twitter, that's the latest Don't news from Aston there. Martin being at Brackley. Uh, uh, sorry, what did, I didn't mean Brackley, did I? I meant... Silverstone. Silverstone, yes, absolutely. Um, yes, they're at Silverstone, just outside the gates. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport, halfway through. Midweek Motorsport, where John has just 48 seconds to tell you what's coming in the next hour. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm watching the clock for that one. Uh, your tweets, please, at Specutainment. Uh, thanks very much for being with us. And thanks for so, to so many people for whom their Spotify accounts have told them that we're number one with them. Well on our way, uh, over five and, a half thousand, uh, five and a half million downloads this year and on our way to six million. And we've still got a few shows to go uh, on Midweek Motorsport in 2021. Coming up, uh, we have got news from F4. We've got some more general news. But next, it's our big interview. And we welcome back to Midweek Motorsport the head of Chevrolet Racing. Stand by as we talk to Laura Wontrop-Klausner here on Midweek Motorsport on RS1. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com Well, hello everybody and welcome to... Delighted to say that joining us again here on Midweek Motorsport is Laura Wontrop-Klauser from... Uh, Chevrolet Racing, uh, which is is fantastic to have you back, Laura. First of all, how are you? And, and what sort of a season have you had? Feet under the table now, a year into the job. How are you feeling? Excited and elated and very, very tired. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, quite a year. Uh, and, and just in general, of course, we were balancing the world, right? We had still had schedule changes in 2021, and we were kind of moving around and and I will say we were so excited to be back at Lama this year but the schedule leading up to it and then during the event was the most intense we've ever dealt with and it, it seemed like when we got back to the states there wasn't a chance to catch your breath you were right on to the next thing so I know that the Corvette team has off this week and thank goodness they do because they need a moment to catch their breath and to relax and our, our Cadillac teams are busy it's it's crazy it's just I can't believe we're back racing in January here in less than a month and a half well yeah start the countdown right now start tearing the bits off the calendar yeah and we've, we feel like exactly the same let's let's start talking about the the GT because in IMSA competition, we sadly say goodbye to GT Le Mans, but you guys have done a fantastic job over the years. You've captured championship again this year. I'm sure not the 
the Petit Le Mans that, that you wanted. But just, yeah. you've been involved in, in various guises down through the years since 2014, since we, we started this version of, of, of IMSA and GT Le Mans. Give, it, give me a, a little... Give me a little thought about about what that meant to particularly to to GM to, to Chevrolet and particularly to Corvette. We have loved every second of what we've done with our race car for the past twenty. Years an opportunity to be in the highest professional racing with our GT race car that was, you know, built off of what we were doing on the production side of the house with the Corvette and having the opportunity to show the world how good our car is. You know, we have a nice strong team that campaigns it for us. Uh, The connection we have with our fans is amazing and I'm sure enviable by all the other brands. Uh, I mean, of course I'm biased, but Corvette fans are phenomenal and they're loyal and they're just such a pleasure to have around supporting us and and giving us the motivation we need to do what we do. So it's, it's bittersweet saying goodbye to what we've known and loved for so many years and and a a formula that's worked great for us. So many championships, um, you know, just, just that great connection. But on the flip side, we're also really excited to get into this next phase for GT Racing and for Corvette. We've never done a full-on customer program like we plan to do with GT3. And to be able to have more teams out there experiencing the car, to get it into maybe different series that it never raced in before, this is all thrilling and exciting to us. Mm. So it's, it's one of those things where you're sad to see what has been so wonderful come to an end, but you're also inspired and energized with what the future holds. And I remember at the beginning of the year, while we were still working through everything, I stood in front of the crowds and we were allowed to see them again. And I told everybody, I said, no matter what, I promise you Corvette will continue racing. And that is true. It's part of our DNA and our heritage. And we we're going to be out there. We may look a little different. It may feel a little different, but we're going to be there. And our goal is still to win. <laughs> I'll come back. Actually, I've, you might see me. We can, Laura and I can see each other. So I, I, I pulled away there and wrote down GT3. We'll come back to GT3 and the new GT3 in a moment, because of course, the exciting news, and it is terribly exciting news for us as sports car fans, Laura, is that Corvette with the current C8R are going to do a full series and a full season of world championship racing. And you guys have never done that before. The WEC, yes, we've seen you at Le Mans, but not in the WEC, maybe cherry-picking a couple of, of events. That That's a big departure for you. How are you going to approach that Ba- I mean, basic logistics-wise, you're going to still run that from the States? Are you going to decant to Europe or somewhere else? How's that going to work? We are still predominantly based in Michigan, in the States. Um, we are still working through the nitty-gritty details on how we're going to be over in Europe and whether or not we have a 
uh, I guess we'll call it a home base there or how all that works. That part we're, we're working through, but 2022 is going to be a learning year for us to see what does it take to do that, to, you know, basically race all but one race in the schedule outside of the continent that we live in. So it's, it's going to be an, an exciting adventure for sure. And, and figuring all that out and, and, we're not going to get it right, right away. I'm sure we're going to learn a ton in terms of when to ship, what to ship, how to ship, mm. all of the logistics fun, uh, as well as I hope when we get to the end of the year, you know, we realize that there's some more economical ways to do things too. Because right now it's all about deadlines more so than trying to be as efficient as possible. And there's so, a lot of juggling yeah. going on, I'm sure. <laughs> It is. It really is. So working through all of that, but, but, you know, it's time it's the, the C8 is launching globally across mm. the world, you know, from the production perspective, and we've got all this exciting future and racing for sports car and, and all the global platforms coming. It was time for us to jump both feet in and finally run a full WEC season and go to tracks we've never been to before and hopefully meet fans that, Maybe we've had, but we've never been able to interact with. So I'm, I'm excited. 2022 is going to be awesome. It's going to be crazy, but it's going to be awesome. <laughs> you, you talk about the streetcar, and this is important because all of our fans, all of our sports car fans around the world need to understand that racing doesn't happen without the, the streetcars and, and the manufacturers getting involved. The catalyst for this then, see it being a global brand and one of GM's few global brands, let's be honest, with the Corvette. Is that why this decision is right, right now, for Corvette Racing to go into into the WAC? It's definitely a huge factor, for sure. It, it you know, we've, all, we've talked about this many times over the years and even before me, I've heard of, you know, this discussion has been happening and it, there's a lot of things that have to line up to make doing this make sense for us. And, and I'm sure that people can understand it's a big investment to be able to do this type of participation. Every time you're shipping something, it's, it's an investment. And then, you know, the logistics and we have to build up the team. We're going to have to bring in some more members to help with all this. So it, it definitely is an investment, but it's one that we feel, you know, matches what's going on in production land as well as gets us ready for our future with sports car racing with both the LMDH platform and the GT3 platform that are coming. So it, it really, it finally, I guess you could say the stars aligned, but everything made it so that it made sense for us to do this. And I'm glad that we're doing this now. I think had we tried to do it earlier, it might not have worked out the way it would. We might not have had the traction we needed and the support. But now it, it's it's ready for us to do this, and I, I think it's it's great. I can't, I can't, I honestly can't wait to get the season started. <laughs> well, at least you get to do the first WEC round on on home ground and a, a circuit that you understand that you know because it's it's going to be at Sebring. It'll be on the Friday night before the Mobile One Twelve Hours. Um, so at least in that respect you're eased into it relatively gently but you haven't made things easy for yourself Laura because whilst you're doing WEC you're also still going to be represented in IMSA competition and to do that with no GTLM you're kind of having to engineer re-engineer the C8R to be something like 
a GT3 car. We know it's not a GT3 car. Everybody knows that. But with IMSA and working with them, you've got to kind of get it into a BOP window. That means different tyres, uh, some new electronics, which I know you cleverly, cleverly tried some of those out without telling anybody at Belle Isle, we've now found out. That was very sneaky. But but that's quite an undertaking in itself. Never mind marrying that with going racing on a global stage, Julie. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's definitely a lot. We we have a lot going on. Thank God all of the people that are involved in our racing programs, the teams, um, those who are General Motors employees that support us in so many different facets, everyone on um, my team that we're building. We're actually bringing more people in on in underneath um, sports car racing at GM within they are all working full out for this, but they're all such strong, passionate, driven individuals and teams mm. that we're able to lean on everybody's strengths and make sure that we can um, take this mountain of workload and divvy it out. Because, you know, by the way, in addition to doing that, we're also developing the GT3 race car. Mm-hmm. So we've got that on top of it, um, the one that's going to launch in 24. And you know, on the Cadillac side of the house, our LMDH car is brand new, and that's being developed. So there's a lot going on. Uh, I, I have a feeling that I should probably just give up on vacations until maybe 25, but we'll see. <laughs> Where, where's So serious question here, Laura. Where are all the personnel coming from? Because you've got here a development role with your partners at Delara, and we'll come on to more detail on that at the moment. So so we'll, we'll talk about that in a wee second. You've got a design and development role for GT3 as well, and two completely separate and quite different characteristics in terms of your, of your GT programs with WEC and, and with IMSA. How does all this, where are these people coming from? Because I know you're going to say, I need more people. Where, where does the budget come from? Where do the people come from? Well, in terms of design and development, we lean very heavy on our two partners. For Cadillac, our partner is Delara. And so they, they are helping kind of lead the charge in terms of the design. Now, we're extremely integrated with them. It's, it's our designers on the, in terms of creating the body shape for the car, making sure it has all the Cadillac aspects and elements in it. That's all coming from within GM, you know, in conjunction with Delara mm. and their help to make sure that it's a proper race car when we, when we get to the um, end of that exercise, as well as it's our power unit that goes into that vehicle too. So that's being designed and developed. On the Corvette side, it's similar. We lean on our our partners at Pratt & Miller to help us with the design and engineering of the race car. Again, with our Chevrolet designers influencing what the car looks like, which on the GT side is a little easier because you start with a production model you already have. So you just want to make sure that you blend the two together as much as you possibly can and use all the great learnings you have from both racing and production to make an even better our car but it's our power unit in that one as well so that's being designed in-house at gm and our teams are growing the engine team has grown i guess they've more than doubled in size in fact they're probably going to triple or quadruple by the end of this for what they need to do to support all of these programs and then on my side of the house from um, program management and then performance and, and those type of just overall setting the goals for the program um, i went from a one-man band to i now have uh, three people underneath me, and we have plans to 
uh, at least double that by the beginning of next year as well. So we're pulling from resources from within General Motors, anyone who mm. wanted an opportunity to come and, and show their stuff in motorsports. And we're also looking to the external world as well. So we're trying to find a nice balance of people that come with a lot of experience, as well as people that have the passion and the motivation and the desire to jump in and can bring some fresh ideas and learn with us. So it's it's been quite a process. Um, it's been thrilling and exciting, but I will say it's it's tough because it would have been nice to have started all this with these people in place, ah. but instead we're getting the right people. And I mean, just like my, the assistant program manager that we brought in in May, Christy Bagney, that works closely to me. She's my right-hand woman. She's incredible. She just jumped both feet in and, you know, said, here, this mountain you got, I'm going to take half of it. You deal with that half. And it, it's been great. And we brought in um, a performance strategist, Mike, who came in in October. I just, I can't say enough good things about the people and the engine side, the, um, the candidates that we've been working with to bring in, it's just, it's incredible. It's really made me so proud of the company that I work for because most of these people are coming from internal and we have some fantastic people at General Motors putting out great product and now we're going to move them into racing. And that's very important, particularly with the GT3. In some respects, Laura, and look, you, you've got a great engineering background. We've talked to you before about this and I think most of our listeners will understand that. And, and therefore, you look at it with an engineer's eyes and, and kind of look at the project from an engineering standpoint. Uh, and that is a great advantage. The C8R, as it stands, is a, is a known quantity. So that goes off to WEC. You kind of understand that. Okay, you're learning some new circuits. You've got some data. You're going to take two cars to Le Mans. Fantastic. I'm not saying that looks after itself, but in some ways... Perhaps that's the, 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 relatively speaking, logistics aside, engineering-wise, that's probably the easiest one. You've got to re-engineer the car to be in a BOP window for GT3 in IMSA and at the same time take the, as you would say, the Z06 version of the car, which is a, a street car, and turn that into a race car. So how much input did the racing side of things have into that new Z06 streetcar, which, by the way, everybody in Australia, South Africa, Japan, here in the UK, we can get it with the steering wheel on the right side now, although there's a queue from the one dealer just outside London, probably to Edinburgh already of people. How much input did you guys have in that to say, guys, we've got to turn this into a race car? A ton. And, and even before we knew that GT3 was the future for us on the racing side, as usual, the racing, the race car and the production car were being developed together. But the way timing worked out, we actually started the race program a little bit sooner than it was planned for the production program. So we got to be able to lead even more just based off of how timing worked. And a great example of that is our engine. The flat plane crank that's in the Z06 production car was in the race car first. Wow. The first fire of that engine, you know, th that, that type of engine was done on the dynos for the race program. So we led that 100%. And, you know, the engine team that, that they found so many things in the process of developing that they were able to feed back to production to make, you know, a, a bigger volume type engine to support the production car even better. So it's never have we been so integrated and so reliant on each other. Same from aerodynamics. A lot of the aerodynamics work that we did on the C8R 
fed back into the Z06. In fact, you can kind of see on the side of the, where the, the door, um, uh, I'm blanking on the, but basically where the handle is and mm. how it's all cut out on the side there, that if you put a, a Stingray and the C8R together, they don't quite look the same. Well, if you put the Z06 next to the C8R, you'll see they're a lot more similar. And then the GT3 will carry on and be even more similar because it's, you know, working with the same parts. So it's just, it's a constant evolution and feeding back into, and we took advantage of Corvette having multiple um, sub cars that they put out like the Z06 that we were able to continuously provide feedback and it never became stagnant. Well, doesn't that go back to the very beginnings of the Corvette and the Stingray? It was, you know, street to track, track to street. There, there, there was a beautiful, almost blurring of the lines between them. I, I can't wait to see the, the Z06 here in the UK with the steering wheel on the right-hand side. I, I'm very, very excited uh, about that. And so I know our, our friends in Australia, South Africa, uh, various of the Japan as well, of course, around the world. True global car. So that's the GT side of things, Laura. We have to talk. My, you know, me, the listeners would, we would be disappointed if we couldn't talk to you about LMDH. You've you've continued the relationship with Delara, which has been successful. Uh, they they know, as we would say in the UK, they know their onions when it comes to to <laughs> chassis. So you know that's great. You're going to work with them. However, there is one significant change before we talk about anything else. Because there are only a certain amount of LMP2 chassis manufacturers, not all of the manufacturers who are in LMDH get to have an exclusivity, as you have had in the past with Delara. And now, one of your competitors in IMSA, BMW, are also with Delara. How do you, how do you work that re- change in relationship with Champiero and everybody at, at Delara? Delara is very professional at what they do. So when BMW decided that they wanted to also work with Delara, and we know Delara's, I mean, if you're if you're doing your job properly as an OE, when you're undertaking a big activity like this, you're speaking to everybody. You want to make sure that you understand what your options are and. On our side, it was easy. We had such a wonderful relationship, a winning relationship with Delara, with the DPI, that it made sense to carry on with them. And, and the partnership and the integration we have between the two companies for when we design these cars together is, is, is great. And, and it's something that we wanted. We didn't want to change how that was working, especially if you look at the mountain of work we were just discussing and how to balance all of that. But in terms of, you know, Delara is able to segment themselves you know, inside their own company so that BMW has, you know, their own wing and we have, the Cadillac has their own wing. There's areas where your stuff stays separate and secret from each other. Mm. And then there's certain things that we'll work together a little bit on. The spine of the vehicle is Delara's. So that'll be the same, whether it's on the Cadillac or the BMW or any other future OE that may work with them. So, you know, from that standpoint, BMW and, and and Cadillac and we have we have a good relationship too. So one that we've actually started on the GT side of things because we've been racing against them for so many years there and that we've been able to build. So I'd like to think that in the most part, all the OEs that are participating in LMDH are quite close right now, mm. mainly because we're working to figure out how to help with this convergence of LMDH and the LMH. So, you know, we've had to lean on each other there, but it's just, it's allowed us to be smart about all of us achieving our goals, which we want a 
nice, big, healthy class, and we want great competition. And none of us want a situation where one person has such an advantage that mm. nobody else stands a chance. Because you just don't feel as gratified when you hold a trophy when you didn't it just was too easy, I guess. And I don't think that's going to happen based off of the players and how well we've been working to make sure that we all have that put up in place. I think it's going to be great racing. So I think that makes us all happy. And that's, it, it really, it, it shows that when you work together, you know, you can find something that is good for everybody. And that's been really important, hasn't it, Laura, in, in this whole collegiate atmosphere that we've had since the, the, announcement of convergence between the the ACO, FIA, IMSA coming together, which you know is extraordinary. Let's let's be honest for those of us who's been around for uh, you know, look, I'm a bit older than I'm a lot older than you, let's be honest. So I've seen this cyclical thing going going around. We had your opposite number from BMW M Motorsport, Mike Crack, on the programme last week. And he talked about how important it's been to have the series, the sanctioning bodies and the OEMs take a slightly different, no, a much different attitude than perhaps we've had in the past where it's it's almost now all for one, one for all. Because if it's not, it's not going to work and we won't get the opportunity to compete against each other. And, and that's been very important here, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it really has. And I mean, even if you look at like right now in the DPI class, um, myself, uh, representative from Acura Mazda, we've tried to stay close with each other as we've been migrating through that and, and working with, especially when we started the discussions about what originally was called DPI 2.0, that then later led into LMDH. It's always been about working together and figuring out how to do this. Because if you if you set it up such that one person is left out, they're not going to bring a race car to the table and you're going to be down that, you know, OE. And, and that's not what we want. We want the opportunity for as many people to be involved because in order to keep racing healthy, we all have to be fully in it. So you got to make that work. <laughs> right. Let's, let's finish this and thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. I know how busy you are. So really is much appreciated from all the listeners and from, from me, particularly as we haven't been able to see each other face to face for a while. It's lovely, lovely to actually see you. Obviously we're, we're talking on radio at the moment, but you and I can see each other. Couple of, couple of specifics. Um, we're talking about LMDH, let's stay with that. You sneakily sort of blaze through engine. What can you tell us about about engine? Styling we know because styling in DPI has been so influenced by Cadillac and the road car, even down to the style of the wheels, for goodness sake, that, that are absolutely unmistakably Cadillac on the DPIs uh, in, in in the current current format. What What... Little hints, teasers, can you tell us about about engine configuration? Well, um, we have things that we know and we love at General Motors, and we're very good at them. Would so, that be V and 8 by any chance? I mean, you know, you can put letters and numbers together however <laughs> you need to, but it's, it's something that made sense for us to stick with what we knew especially going into this realm of a situation where we're playing in a space that's new for mm. us which is the hybrid integration into the racing platform right so the less the least amount of variables that you can put on yourself for change is good 
And we wanted to make sure that we, you know, set ourselves up for success from that standpoint. And, you know, there's certain things about our race cars, certain sounds, certain personalities that we're proud of. And whether it's on the Cadillac or the Chevrolet side, you know, there, there's a, you know, when one of our race cars drives by, in fact, my favorite thing is when I'm talking to somebody at the racetrack and I hear that car roaring and I don't even have to turn around. I know it's one of ours oh, yeah. and it makes me smile every time. <laughs> you feel it in the sternum uh, when one of your cars goes by. There is a bit more freedom, Laura, in the aero from current DPI to DPI 2.0 LMDH, particularly on the, the side pods and the bits in between the wheels. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm one of these people who actually reads uh, reads <laughs> technical directives and, and stuff like that. Has that given you the opportunity to be creative? Oh, yes. The car's gorgeous. It's absolutely so, so stunning. It, so it exists in virtual reality? You've got mock-ups? How far down the line are you? We're, we're getting there. So we have to get to the point where we're t- cutting tools soon. Our goal has been to get a car on the track in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're at this point, we're arguing over millimeters and, you know, which is the healthiest of the, ar- of the arguments, because that means that you got all the big stuff taken care of. Now it's just a little bit, but it's, um, it, 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 it's stunning. The people that have had the honor in our leadership at GM to see the car and, um, you know, obviously our teams that we're working with have seen it and all of them have been blown away. So I, I would like to think that that's going to carry forward when we're able to fully announce and reveal the car to the public. Let's finish off where we started with GT, which as far as Corvette is concerned, is everything because you guys race what you build. Um, I've, I've had that conversation with your predecessors in the past and, and I, I have always felt in my heart of hearts that as long as Bowling Green Kentucky are, are shelling out Corvettes for the road, there'll be a Corvette racing, racing somewhere. Um, we've talked about the challenges you have for next year with the C8R in its now two, uh, two characters. Come 2024, you've got a GT3 car. You've done GT3s before with the Camaro. You've taken what you've learned from that. From what I've read, and maybe I'm putting two and two together and making a lot more than four, at the moment you're only talking about customer cars for this, particularly in in Le Mans and WEC, because that's how the ACO want it. Is that slightly frustrating for you? Well, I wouldn't say that we're limiting ourselves to anything right now. We're waiting on some information to come through to help understand what does the GT space look like uh, 2023 and 2024 and beyond. Um, I know that the when they made the announcement that they were going to GT3 at Le Mans this year, they also said, we realize we've got more information to provide and that's supposed to be coming soon here. So we're we're waiting to see what that's all about. But ultimately we've talked a lot about the customer program because that's the new part of this, something Mm. we've never really done with Corvette. And and we want to make sure that we reach out and we've been gathering interest. So like Chevrolet.com slash motorsport, you can go in and put in what we call hand raiser form. If this is something you would be interested in, in participating with, you know, and, and wanting to race our, our GT3 Corvette. So we wanted to make sure people understood that that was happening and they could do that. I know a lot of people have been asking about what's going on on the more factory side of the house. Well, we also really value what we get by having a, a professional team mm-hmm. that we have a lot of influence over. Um, you know, you could call it factory or 
as we move forward, maybe professional team makes more sense based off of GTD how GT Pro. racing works. Yeah, yeah. But our intent is to hopefully carry that forward. We're, you know, that's what we love. We love connecting back to the customers with a car that has Corvette yellow on it, you know, has that, that brand identity that they're looking for, that has drivers they know and love. And, and all that familiarity, plus the lessons that we can learn by having someone who's very familiar with the car working with it so yeah. that if we want to, you know, offer up any suggestions to any customers that are racing the car like that. So that is the intent. We just are waiting for the rest of the jigsaw pieces to get put together so we can figure out exactly how to feed everything in and how to fit it. It's uh, It's been a lot of waiting, right? We've been getting little bits of information throughout the year. Uh, and it's, I understand it's hard. Everyone, this is a big shift in the GT space yes. and no one was exactly sure what it was going to look like on the other side. So now we're to the point where it's the fine details, but they matter. So we're working through that. <laughs> and we're all excited about that. And potentially of all the challenges we've talked about, Laura, setting up that customer facing side of things because if you've got gt3 if the new gt3 GP, gt3 2.0 takes off the way gt3 has and, and stefan rattel take a bow i doff my hat to you chapeau stefan you could have customers in gtd in uh in imsa in gt3 in europe doing spa 24 uh, out in the far east uh, doing bathurst the liquid molly 12 hours You've got to set up something to support all that, which, as you've said, you've not done before. And the German manufacturers, uh, and you know, Porsche sits above everybody for customer racing. That that is the one that everybody looks at. But all of those guys have got, in some respects, Porsche's got fifty years on you. So how do you approach that? Well, we are very much trying to pace ourselves and not bite off more than we could chew. So we hope that we have a lot of interest in the vehicle. And so far we've been getting quite a bit of people reaching out, which is great. But for the first couple of years, we are going to be very careful with how much our maximum volume is going to be because we don't want a situation where we commit it to all of these teams. And then when they turn around and they need help or they need parts or they need things you need when you're racing. Technical car, advice, yeah, and exactly. We, and we can't give them immediate you know, service and attention for what they need. So we keep saying we're doing the crawl, walk, run approach where we are ramping up into this. And the intent is that we want it to be a great experience for everybody, including us, to have this customer program be successful. If you go in too hot and then didn't get yourself set up properly, then you lead yourself to disappointment and that can cause some bad decision-making. So we wanna make sure we do it step-by-step. Step. And I think by being disciplined and doing it in that way, yeah, we might have to turn some people away initially that were interested in the car, but I think that once we can build out a really strong foundation, we'll be able to give the whole program what it needs and be able to grow it even larger as we look to the future. So it's uh, it's an exciting time for sure. Um, <laughs> one that we're each day we're chipping away at how are we going to do this? And it seems like 2024 sounds like it's a long way away, but it's no. definitely not. So. No, no, absolutely not. We've got the we've got the uh, 
the big anniversary, the 60th anniversary of Rolex 24 coming next year. We've got the 100th anniversary of Le Mans in, in 2023. We've got all this new stuff coming in, in 2024. You, right right here, right now, Laura, as an engineer, as a, as a racing and endurance enthusiast, excited? Uh, scared? philosophical how how are you feeling as an individual right now <laughs> i don't know is all the above the right answer i think it probably uh, yeah. is yes I, i'm excited i i really am and yeah it's we it's a big task and i'm i'm terrified too at all of the work we have to do and and clearly my leadership wants to see results our fans wants to see results and we want to see results, right? I mean, you don't want to put in all this effort and not walk away and go, wow, that's incredible. We, we got it. We got that shiny trophy. So I think if anything, I'm energized. I'm, I can't believe how the sport is growing. I am thrilled with how GM um, leadership has said, let's do this. Let's go all in. We've yeah. got this. They put, you know, so much faith in all of us and, and those who work with us. So it's it's by far the most exciting time to be in sports car racing at GM or in from any OE's perspective because there's so much going on and just to have the opportunity to be a part of this is a dream come true so I don't know how it's going to get topped I can't even imagine what the next round of racing excitement is going to look like but right now I'm just enjoying every second of it (laughs) and so you should I'm sorry you're not going to get any vacation time until 2025 (laughs) 2026 as we probably talked about Laura Wantrum Clouser thank you so much for joining us on Midweek Motorsports the fans I think are going to be very uplifted very excited to know that we're still going to be moved with sound, with smell and with vision of the products that are coming out of Chevrolet Racing and GM. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) Great stuff. Thanks, Laura. Tim Gray, where would you like to take us next? Uh, Tomorrow night at 8 on RS1. It's uh, another episode of the Simcast. Uh, just like us, they're on episode 47 for this year. Oh, good. Uh, and they will be previewing episode 48, which is their Christmas special. They also have some previews of the new build iRacing, uh, which is uh, coming out next week. And uh, their reaction What's to... that ding? You've got a microwave on there. No, that's uh, Lewis Sadley telling me exactly what's <laughs> happening tomorrow <laughs> in real time. Uh, Excellent. Brilliant. And news. their reaction to the trailer for the sim racing movie. Uh, oh. They don't know why there is a sim racing movie, um, but, you know. <laughs> ben and Lewis, tomorrow <laughs> night, they're going to go back to uh, cooking uh, now. And uh, it is an American show uh, this week. Not a right. not a UK one, uh, so right. Matt Hunter will be busy, uh, hoping that uh, the two Johnnies, uh, who are Grey and Hill, are fit for the visit of Saracens on Saturday afternoon. Oh yes, very good. He just like his rugby. Listening to Midweek Motorsport, uh, Series Sixteen, Episode Forty Seven. Remember, it's historic bits of muse tonight after us, but that music means only one thing. And that means that we're going to be talking about our show of the year. We left you in limbo last week because we gave you 
almost all of the nominations for almost all of the categories. But there was one category, Tim Gray, that was absent because we needed the listeners' input. Indeed, and we asked the listeners to send us tweets using the hashtag SOTYR... No, SOTYLA. Uh, yes, that's right. Lala. So Tyler. Um, to nominate people who they thought should be included uh, in the Vote for the Listeners Award. And we have picked four of those. Uh, two young and upcoming drivers and two <laughs> retiring drivers slash riders. Yes, good point. So we have the young and upcoming uh, IndyCar champion, Alex Palo. Shay, do you want to say a few words about Alex Palo? Very impressive uh, launch onto the scene last year for Dale Coyne Racing. Moved to the championship winning team in Chip Ganassi Racing for this year. And wasted no time taking victory in the first round of the season. He proved this year that he was the guy to beat. And uh, certainly contending against the likes of Scott Dixon and Marcus Erickson as teammates, he came out on top. Uh, second nomination is uh, runner-up in IndyCar's Rookie of the Year uh, competition. That's Roman Grosjean. And Roman was the most impressive driver as far as the Rookie of the Year is concerned this year. I will put my hand up and say I did not see that coming. Uh, Roman finished with, what, three podiums on the year, a pole position, and was frequently fighting for a win again in Dale Coin machinery. Can't wait to see what he does with Andretti in 2022. And John, you can tell us about the third nominee, the uh, shy and retiring Valentino Rossi. Well, retiring, uh, never shy. Um, I, I did notice a bit of tape that was dug up from from Cota where he was saying he's going to go to the to IMSA next year and he particularly wants to drive GTs at Daytona. So I, I presume that once that hit the socials, people started scrambling. I know he's been courted by Porsche already. How he wants Lando uh, Norris as his uh, co-driver? Do, do you know what? Well, that would probably put him in a different car from a Porsche, but okay, fair well, enough. Well, it would put him in a uh, United Autosports car, wouldn't it? Possibly. But I think he wants to do GT because he's done that in the past. Anyway, well, They have a history Valent- of running GTs as well, don't they? They could. They run GT4, certainly, McLarens. Um, the the uh, Valet has come to an end of an, an illustrious and just star-spangled career. Um, Matt Oxley writing the final chapters to his book, which, how he's going to get that turned around for Christmas, I've got no idea. He has spanned uh, decades, literally. He was the sport for a very long time in MotoGP. It's not very often that uh, an individual transcends the sport. Valentino Rossi did that. He brought people to the sport that would never have done it before. And he's bowed out on his own terms. He's put his money where his mouth is, has done for the last few years with his uh, with his uh, teams. And we're not finished seeing the competitive side of Valentino Rossi yet, mark my words. And uh, finally, it's the uh, ice cream and vodka-loving Kimi Raikkonen. It was the anniversary, I think yesterday, um, maybe the day before. No, I think it was yesterday, uh, if you're talking about w- the same yeah, anniversary. Yeah, the, 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 the anniversary of Kimi having to apologise for, and I quote, riding an inflatable dolphin in a nightclub and outside of a nightclub. Outside of a nightclub, specifically. 
I think it started inside, which was where most of the problems were. But yes, um, in in Spain, uh, Marbella, wasn't it? Um, Marbella. And uh, he'd had a bit of a night out. And uh, brilliant Matt Bishop on his, on this day. That was his on this day for yesterday. And um, when he was saying, you know, it, it got a bit out of hand. This was this was Kimmy saying it got a bit out of hand. We uh, we had a few drinks. And before you ask, why was I riding an inflatable dolphin? Why not? Which is just so Kimmy. Uh, we lose him from Formula One. It'd be, I'm very interested to find out what he does. He's driven other stuff in the past. He's, he likes his off-road stuff. Um, mercurial char- character, not universally loved by no means. Um, but I do. I think personally that the Formula One paddock will be slightly less interesting um, for the loss of Kimmy Reichen, and he's the fourth of the listener nominations for the listener award. Now, Tim, you're going to tell us how we can vote for though that category and indeed for all the other categories. Indeed I am, because all you have to do is go to the website, click on right. the uh, top story, which is currently this week's uh, show, uh, which has the photograph of the voting box. Oh, yes, it is already there. Well and done. And then uh, you can vote. Right, hang on, let me click on it. If you're not listening if... live then uh, you'll also be able to listen to this uh, podcast uh, on that very same page. And uh, also, I should warn you that if you're not listening live, uh, voting closes on uh, Tuesday, December the 7th at 6pm, and any votes received after that time may not be counted. Mm, Very good. John is going to Um, sit there and go, ooh, while he decides who he's going to vote for. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm trying to remember who I said. Uh, oh, you can't even remember <laughs> who your nominees are. Oh, good. Uh, well, it's good because it's an aired memoir. I'm going. I'm going through. We've got actually. We have got some phenomenal um, nominees this yes. year. Oh, I see. So I can't vote many times because I've got to put my email address in. If you have more than one email address, and you could vote many times. Yes. Got seven to go off of. Yes, you well. I can vote seven times. <laughs> and of course, you now, can uh, vote early. borrow email addresses of your friends and family. Well, yes. Oh, yes. So, uh, so now, how is this going to work for next? So, next week is the show, is it? Next week is the show, yes. Right, so get our Ooh. our spanglies out for, for next week. Excellent stuff. Um, and it, it, and obviously it, it, Nick it gets always... his spanglies out every week, but we don't like to talk well, about that. No, indeed. And in fa- now we should say that it it isn't just that. If you're new to this on Midweek Motorsport, and we're getting more listeners live every week and more downloads every week, so thank you for that, uh, as well as we're coming towards the end of our our broadcast. Yeah, um, it, there will still be other features in the program. Yes, we'll and have we Nick will, Damon's team by team review of the uh, Jeddah Grand Prix, for example. Good, I think. Uh, so anyway, that's how you vote. Uh, go and do it right now, unless you're listening to this after 6pm on uh, Tuesday the 7th of December, in which case it's pointless. And we'll move on, because one of the uh, people you could vote for is... Uh, oh, clever. Max Esterson. Yes, very good. Who today yes. has signed for Douglas Motorsport in next year's GB3 Championship, which is uh, the British Formula 3 Championship, but which isn't allowed to use the word Formula 
in its uh, name because they'll get sued by the FIA, uh, even <laughs> though they're closer to Formula 3 than FIA Formula 3 cars, neither this of which are really Formula a, 3. Such a soapbox of yours, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, Douglas Motorsport's been a leading force in the UK's Premier Single Seater Championship uh, since their debut in 2013, and they're targeting more front-running success uh, next and, and year. If, and if you uh, recognise the name of Max Esterton, he's one of Jeremy Shaw's Team USA graduates for this year, and he won the Walter Hayes Formula Ford Festival uh, Formula Ford uh, event and was, was second in the second Formula Ford Festival. In the Formula Ford Festival, so he's had a pretty good year having run in the British Formula Ford Championship this year. And talking of Formula Ford, Tim, well, I was going to say uh, what Wayne Douglas had to say first, which is oh, go on, yes, Max go on. is a very yeah. talented young driver, and we're delighted he to is. welcome him to the team. He's put in some superb performances in Formula Ford this season, particularly in the two big events in recent weeks. And if there's early testing times or anything to go by, we're confident he'll be a leading name in GB3 as well. And Max said, I'm really excited to continue my single-seater career with a step up to the GB3 Championship. Switching from the Formula 4 to the GB3 car was a bit of an adjustment, but Wayne and the team have done a great job welcoming me into the series and are providing me with a great place to continue learning. Uh, So that season starts uh, in April at Alton Park. Easter weekend, if I'm not mistaken. Um for that. Now, talking of Formula Ford, as we were there, um, I went off on a bit of a tour last week to go and see a new championship, or at least the, the new second car generation of, of the championship. championship. Yes. It's the new car of the Rocket F4 British Championship, certified by the FIA and powered by Abarth. And uh, the second generation car was unveiled, was it on Thursday? It was Thursday, and it, and it, of course, replaces the Ford-engined cars of the past, and they've been around for many, many years. Yes, Ford EcoBoost was the uh, previous uh, power supplier. Uh, and that was at Bista Heritage, wasn't it? It was. Um, it is. Uh, it was at the home of the series organisers, which are Motorsport uh, UK. And you spoke to Hugh Chambers, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Motorsport UK, and this is what he had to say. Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for uh, being here today and seeing the launch of the new British F4 Championship. We are really excited with the introduction of the new Generation 2 car. Uh, It's really the opportunity for a step change in the way in which the championship is promoted. Uh, We believe that there's a real opportunity to have a much greater engagement with the international community. The UK has always been the place where the brightest talent around the world would come to the UK to prove themselves and move on to greater things in single-seater racing. And British F4 has been strong for the last few years, but we think that there's an opportunity to really step things up. Motorsport UK is the ESN for motorsport in the UK, um, part of the FIA. It has an overarching responsibility for running the sport here. There will be people who perhaps don't realise, Hugh, that, that you have would be so involved, the organisation would be so involved, in forming this championship. Well, I, I think it's a good question. The, the role of a governing body... Uh, in running a championship Uh, and of course at the highest level the FIA is directly involved in running all of their international world championships and we also have a lot of experience of organizing events we long-term organizer of 
the WRC event in this country. Uh, we are the organizer of the British Grand Prix, providing all of the infrastructure and the officials and the marshals. And we are also the organizer and promoter of the British Kart Championship, which uh, I think I'd be right in saying is the biggest single championship in this country in motorsport with over 480 drivers taking part this year. So the, the governing body has got a good track record of organizing championships successfully, making sure that we have uh, not only just the right standards of um, fairness and, and equality, uh, but also we believe that we have got the right skill sets to promote it uh, and to make sure that we have the right profile and attract the best drivers in the world. We should make the point this isn't a, a new championship. British F4 has been around in a variety of guises for a very long time indeed, and the alumni who've come through it, it are, have peppered international motorsport down, down through the years. When you were looking at this Gen 2 car, what were... What was the rationale, if you will? What were the absolute must-haves to bring it into line with, as you said, the international side of things? Well, there are a couple of things. The FIA, in introducing the Gen 2 car, I think further cements the relevance of the FIA's single-seater pathway from F1 all the way down to F4, and the introduction of the safety features that have become imperative in terms of the most visible element being the halo, uh, really does give credibility to this as the premium single-seater championship for youngsters coming into um, the, the, the front line of motorsport uh, worldwide. And uh, it's the only championship where uh, youngsters really can start to get that experience uh, with the safety of uh, the halo device, with the safety of the crash protection devices. And, and that means that we've got the right product. It's then the way in which the regulations work means that we have uh, to select the actual manufacturer, uh, both in terms of the chassis and the engine, and we work with the teams. And I can't stress how important it is to work with the teams and make sure that we're developing a product, if you want to call it that, as a championship, which is what they want, because those are the guys that are out there forming the relationship with the drivers, bringing the drivers into the championship, mm. and, and they're critical to success. So it's the teams that we needed to focus on and I, and I think they voted with their uh, voted with their orders in that we've got seven teams now already committed. In fact, I hear rumours of an eighth actually signing up today. Um, and we've got uh, a huge number of drivers that are already committing to the championship. And, and a fantastic quality of teams when you see the likes of Carlin and Virtuosi and the others. That almost says to me straight away, and I hope it does to you, that we've got this right straight off the bat. Uh, certainly the feedback that we've had is that teams that uh, have not been in British Formula 4 um, and coming into it uh, is, is that they're doing it because they do have the confidence mm. that Motorsport UK is going to do this correctly, uh, that we're standing behind it, that we're underwriting it, and that we have got, I, I think, the credibility to actually do a really good professional job. And, and also, one thing I'd really have to emphasise, the, the big difference technically is that we're working with Neil Brown Engineering and all of our engines, in exactly the same way that they were done with the Ford EcoBoost, yeah. will be equalised and will make sure that the, the championship is completely fair. 
Tatus, the chassis manufacturer, has a huge, huge back catalogue of of success, and also particularly in the the UK as well. We've we've seen their their products down through the years. Was it slightly frustrating for Motorsport UK that there was not a British manufacturer, chassis manufacturer, that you could call on because we simply don't have them anymore? I think it's an enormous frustration for for all of us in this country, and uh, I, I'm frequently asked, you know, what happened to single seater manufacturing in this country, and it almost sort of evaporated in front of our eyes over a period of 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And I've got every respect for the guys at Tatus. They do a fantastic job. Uh, but in all honesty, I can't see any reason why we can't be doing that in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it's not as if we're trying to compete with uh, equipment which is being manufactured on a low-cost base in China. Um, we're competing with you know, a manufacturing base in northern Italy. Yeah. And there really isn't any good reason why we shouldn't be back there. Amongst the new initiatives in this championship that will catch people's eyes um, are, uh, is an extraordinary commitment that you've ha- you have with your uh, partner, Rocket, who uh, have uh, put their name on the championship, on the British F4 championship, to bring through someone from the gaming community. Uh, this is not new. We've seen it done before in other formula and from my world in, in endurance and GT racing, of course. But this is, I think, the first time we've seen it at this level in a single-seater championship with an opportunity for a couple of young drivers to go through for a fully funded 2023 drive. Why is that important? And what would you say to people who say, well, that's just a, that's just a bit of a gimmick, to be honest? I think it's much more than a, than, than a gimmick or a, a promotional device. I think it's symbolic of the opportunity for somebody genuinely to come in without the funding, mm. uh, but with the talent, uh, and to come through. And as you say, th- there are examples in the past where that's happened. Um, I don't think there's enough of it. I think that there is the opportunity for a real crossover between the esports community and the real-world community. And we know for a fact that if you've got really high levels of skills with simulators, you absolutely can then uh, mirror that in your on-track performance. It's not like playing FIFA. If you're good at FIFA, it doesn't necessarily mean you can turn out for a top soccer club, but it's transferable skills, and I absolutely understand how that's developed and become in the forefront of people's minds, particularly over the last 18 months, two years. If if I was to put you on the spot now and say, what do you think is the most exciting part of what we've seen and heard today, uh, and what are you looking forward to people getting to know about the new uh, British F4 season when it starts next year? I think it'll be the quality of drivers. Uh, I think it will be when they're announced. It will be a world-class group of drivers because it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you can attract the best drivers in the world to your championship, then that's where the best drivers want to be. And the reason that the UK for decades was at the forefront of single-seater racing in the world was that it was the place to come. Mm-hmm. And it was the reason that Senna, or even before that, Jochen Rindt, PK, mm-hmm. um, and after that, you know, Hacken and Raikkonen, they all came to the UK because it was the place where you proved yourself. And we've got to get back to that. Yeah. You know? And we've got some fantastic graduates in the last few years, like Lando, like George. But we want to be doing it with everybody yes. around the world, that they want to come here. This is the championship to compete in. Yeah, and you know, British F3 was a must-have on your CV as an international driver. A British Rally Championship, we should say as well, was exactly exactly the same. Completely agree, and and I have to say, it's a, it's a massive frustration that the British Rally Championship and rallying in this country um, has, in some way, lost its 
its pinnacle position mm. and it's certainly there are other countries now where people go depending on the surface and depending on the on the categories uh, and that's also something we're working on <laughs> as you can imagine our chairman david richards um, it's very close to his heart uh, what i would say is that it's not an easy thing to fix no. it's an extremely complex thing to to actually resolve how we get a better structure into rallying in this country however we're firmly committed to it. Well, as somebody who was stage commander at Munkailder in the old days of, of the Lombard RSA, you've got my support on that particularly. Final question, how important in building the new F4 championship and that international uh, reputation, the international draw for the drivers and, and for the teams, in fact, how important is being on the British Touring Car Championship, Bill, and the TV, the network, terrestrial TV coverage that goes with it? The, the the drivers that are coming into the British F4 Championship uh, need to have justification to their backers, to their family, mm-hmm. that they're going to be in the best place. And actually, the Toka package, the British Touring Car package, is second to none. It, and I mean that worldwide, not just in the UK. The level of profile, the live coverage on Sunday, uh, the fact that you're able to see 30,000 people in the stands... When you send that photograph back to your family overseas, they know that you're in the place where that's where you've got to be. That's where the talent comes mm. to get noticed. That was uh, Hugh Chambers, CEO of Motorsport UK, talking to me on Thursday uh, after the launch of the second generation British F4 car with the Tatler chassis and the 140 horsepower Abarth engine and there's some good teams signed up for that uh, Tim and part of that, I think part of that is the fact that they have chosen that package because that has been used in fact we've commentated on it in the UAE yeah, and the Italian championships and uh, look at how many teams who were in the British F4 championship last season have already announced an entry into the UAE uh, F4 championship for next January just to get Very a bit good. of practice with the car ahead of uh, going into the British season, which again starts in April. Uh, now, finally, uh, yes. I was going to say, uh, is Shay Adams still with us? Of course she is. Hello. Hello. Shay, have you been <laughs> teaching Oliver Askew Spanish? Uh, no, senor. Interesting. Because... Well, Jake Dennis today uh, published a video in which he shows his uh, helmet design for the next uh, Formula E season. Um, And standing in the background in Valencia in Spain uh, is Oliver Askew eating a cheese and tomato sandwich. Yes. Oh, no. But he actually actually ordered um, two slices of bread with a tie in between them. And he got yeah. the cheese and tomato. And sandwich. he wanted a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what happens when you send kids from South Florida to Spain. Yes, yeah, very. He looks good. quite happy about it anyway. That's what we've got time for. Uh, just a quick <laughs> reminder that in 57 minutes, it's the first free practice session for the Bathurst 1000 this year. It's a packed, absolutely packed programme. But of and course, if you you'll all it... miss the first 45 minutes of that session because you'll be busy listening to this week's, uh, this month's Historic Racing News Show, which features me talking about the worst three single-seater cars of all time. 
It's, it runs for more shortly. than an hour, does it? It's an hour and three quarters, uh, this show. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, timing is available for the Bathurst. And uh, if you go to the racetalk.com, um, there's a number of bits and pieces that Krillsy's put together. He's there working with Chad Nolan in the in the booth for 50 hours of broadcasting that they're doing with all the supports. And, of course, you can also go to the website, our website, for the Bathurst preview. If you didn't listen to that last week, listen to it this week. It's got all sorts of people on it, like uh, Grant Rowley, racing driver um, Stephen Johnson, uh, and millions of others. It's not uh, out for another four days, really. Well, no, exactly. Uh, And he did a, did a, a... a walk round as well today, which is which is on their site on the racetalk.com. So plenty of things to get your teeth into before the race, which in the UK the race coverage starts at uh, midnight forty-five on Sunday morning, runs through at about eight o'clock in the morning, and it is obviously the right race to be watching at the weekend. All I'm seeing on that. Thanks to all of our guests this week particularly to Laura Wontrop-Clauser and to uh, Ryan Smith as well for, for sorting that out. To Charlotte Lumley, who helped us get Will Owen on the programme tonight. And uh, particularly to uh, to Amoligato Watches, who were uh, the people who invited me. Series sponsor of British F4, by the way, this year, who invited me to the launch, which meant I could speak to Hugh Chambers for Motorsport. UK. Uh, Enjoy whatever you're doing across the weekend and we'll be back same time, same place for the show of the year. Get your glad rags out. The biggest and the most important. It's the only award show that counts. 8 o'clock, RS1 next week. Thanks, Shay. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Tim. And thanks to the responsible adult. Historic Racing News. Worst racing cars ever. Comes next. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.